Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are, you know, it's, I, I each time in the last, in the last few months, I feel like I introduced the podcast by talking about how weird it is that we're doing a virtual podcast, which is probably getting a little old at this point, but you know, okay, you know, give me, cut me some slack. And, but now we're watching this virtual convention, uh, Democratic convention, uh, the, you know, uh, at first Donald Trump was like, oh, that's a girly man convention. You're not going to be able to kind of really be hardcore and show up and kick COVID's ass in person and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but soon enough, you know, at, at this point, what is it? The, you know, it's either going to be at Gettysburg or the White House and virtual <laughs> and like the, the sad sacks in, in Charlotte and, and Jacksonville, you know, are, 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 are you know, trying to re- rescue their economy since he pulled out of those things. So anyway, everybody's going virtual, basically. Uh, and, 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 you know, uh, the White House is his house, so that's virtual. Same difference, just a fancy house. And we're gonna, we're not gonna lead with that. We're gonna talk about that a bit later, since we've been doing uh, special editions about the convention. Um, but I was just saying uh, in a post uh, this morning that I actually find it better. I find it more interesting. I li- I just enjoy it better. And some of that is because. You know, I, I've probably watched seven or eight, I don't even, can't even think ex- exactly how many, seven or eight conventions on the, you know, the, the old model. And it's just, you know, you know what it is. There's a dais, there's, there's the people in the, in the, in the arena. And it's, you know, it's a very, um, it's a very choreographed and set thing. And to me, at least, it's, it's very important. It's not just that it's produced. The thing they're doing now virtually is very produced. But people have, you know, three minutes. They go up to that dais. They say, ah, I'm from the lizard state. The the best lizards of anywhere in this country in the Republic of Lizardania. You know, all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, and there's uh, confetti and balloons and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and this... It's 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 different, and and um, you know it is produced, but you know you're seeing people in their living rooms or on their stoop or something, and uh, you know they're not um, you know they're not going to be wearing like a a t-shirt like I am now, but you know they're not kind of set up in a suit and stuff, and it's just a little you get a little more sense of like okay that's that you know um, member of Congress's house that's interesting you know interesting art member of Congress, right? <laughs> so um, it, I, yeah, I've, Kate, just, I've just liked Kate it better. Just, yeah. Kate and I were just talking on our convention special about how much we enjoyed the virtual roll call and just getting to see the kind of different parts of the country and the, the U.S. territories and the hilarious plate of calamari in Rhode Island and all the kind of little quirks of the, you know, 
the different parts of the country, and that's something that you wouldn't you wouldn't get uh, the same flavor of, no pun intended, uh, in a kind of stadium convention hall setting. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of just novel stuff, and it and it and it is at one level it's just new. So you know it's kind of it's more interesting when things are new, like oh okay, you know different. Different plan, different way of going about this, and you and you can kind of express creativity in 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 different ways. But to me, it is it has just seemed more intimate. It's you know kind of more real, and and you know I see these people in different parts of the country, and I'm like, oh, I've never been there. That's it's a big country, right? Um, so I've 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 uh, you know big thumbs up for me so far. Uh, before we get any further, let me remind you that Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you stay cool and caffeinated this summer with their signature New Orleans style iced coffee. If you're still holed up at home, Grady's can bring the coffee shop to you. Their line of brew-it-yourself bean bags ship directly to your door for less than a buck a cup, and the system could not be easier to use. You just add water to the pre-measured filter bags for gallons of completely customizable cold brew. No special equipment required, and shipping is free on all Grady's beanbag products. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, you can also pick up Grady's at Amazon.com or at your local grocery store if you are, if you, are uh, you know, brave enough to go full COVID, go into a grocery store, you know, put on your mask, all that kind of good stuff. So David, what do we got? What are we doing? All right. So we're joined today by Josh Kavensky, an investigative reporter in our New York office. Hey, Josh. Hey, how are you doing? Good, thanks. So uh, yesterday we, re- you know, we we saw the release of the final Senate Intelligence Committee Russia report um, on you know looking into Russian election meddling in the 2016 election. This was a 1,000-page report uh, that, in a lot of ways, and I'm, I'm hoping you can expand on this, Josh, went further than Robert Mueller's report did. Obviously, the burden of of proof and evidence is different in a congressional investigation uh, than a criminal investigation where indictments and kind of proof beyond a reasonable doubt is really the standard. Um, the report focused a lot on Paul Manafort, uh, called him, I believe the quote was a grave counterintelligence threat, and also dug into one of his longtime associates, Konstantin Kalimnik. Am I saying that right, Josh? Yeah, yeah, Kalimnik. Yeah. Kalimnik, yeah. Um, so tell us kind of what what listeners should know about this final Russia report. Obviously, it's you know we're almost four years set past the the twenty sixteen election, and and yet you know we're still kind of receiving new information about uh, what went down in the lead up to that. So what what are some of your big takeaways from it? I think broadly, it's interesting. So first of all, this is not just like a Democratic side of Congress report. It's it was led by the Republican side. Um, so I think anybody who reads the results should just have that in mind in terms of how they interpret it. That it, this isn't this is coming from both parties. Um, so just as kind of a preamble, uh, I mean the biggest conclusions were that. Konstantin Kalimnik, Manafort's longtime associate, uh, was in fact a Russian intelligence officer, and that there is fragmentary evidence, as the report says, to suggest that both Kalimnik and Manafort were involved in the other half of the uh, interference campaign, which was the Russian military intelligence uh, hacking and stealing of emails from the Clinton campaign and disseminating them through WikiLeaks. So if if, uh, listeners remember when the Mueller report came out, the big kind of unanswered question there was whether or not there was a connection between the two sides. I think Mueller just said that he couldn't he couldn't determine whether or not there was um but in this senate report they say that there is some evidence to suggest 
that there was, in fact, a connection between, um, you know, Paul Manafort's position as campaign chairman, his involvement with this guy who's a Russian intelligence officer, and, uh, you know, the Russian military intelligence activity during the election. Um, the report phrases it and frames it up in such a way where the kind of the lacuna, like the gaps in it, are in some ways still the most interesting part. So there are a lot of questions left open. Uh, because investigators weren't able to access things that Manafort, you know, used encrypted encrypted apps or encrypted email accounts to discuss. So mo- the vast majority of Manafort's communications with Kolomnik are were unknown to investigators. Um, and the also, as the report notes, really I think strongly and succinctly, uh, the thing that Manafort really lied about after he did his plea agreement with the special counsel investigation was about his communications with Kolomnik. So they make the point that Manafort was willing to risk extra jail time to shield whatever he discussed with Kolomnik during the campaign. It's, and Josh, um, I was going to say, Josh among other things, it's good advertising for encrypted devices. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can well, say like, the full weight of the U.S. government was not that stuff's just, you know, they it, can't get it. it. it yeah. And, and he used something like seven different apps or something, right? Like he had, um, he had WhatsApp seven, and he had seven, of- seven or like, even like a dozen different apps. Um, it was really. Yeah. I mean, it made me think of that because it was never clear to me when you take these precautions, like using Signal or like disappearing messages, does that actually work? Or is this just like a sort of like, is this just a game like we're all playing? But yeah, it does conclusively show that. Or kind of like, does it work works. until things really get serious? Until they yeah. really bring out the big sort of like, you know, uh, counter encryption guns. And it, it shouldn't be surprising because this is how it is supposed to work. And a lot of really serious security people say, you know, you do it right and it works. And, and it's, but it's just a kind of a good proof in the pudding that it, it does work. <laughs> That stuff yeah. go into the grave, basically. And there's a lot of good color around that. Like uh, one technique they were using was called foldering, where uh, it would be Kalimnik and Manafort had access to the same encrypted email account. Uh, and so what they would do is they would write an email, save it in the draft, saying the person would log on and look at it. And their co- code word was, uh, I think it was like, there's like a new tea bag that I, I, I've steeped for you. So they also spoke in this like very kind of creepy like lingo throughout the entire thing. But that's I mean that's not the most substantive, but yeah. And Josh Kavensky, wasn't it true also um, the report contradicted in some ways uh, one of Mueller's, I guess not findings exactly, but claims in that Kalimnik went to work for a Western think tank much more quickly after leaving the Russian intelligence uh, military unit than was previously thought, right? It was in a matter of months as opposed to maybe a couple years or something like that. Yeah, I think one of the broad arcs that the report, the Senate report shows is that Kalimnik, as this Russian intelligence officer, the report, the Senate report suggests that he basically left the Russian military in 1995 and from then on was just kind of implanting himself in various like places where Americans were, and specifically Americans who had an interest in shaping the policy of countries the former Soviet Union were, and that Kalimnik very consciously implanted himself in those circles, and then once Manafort you know, kind of went back to the U.S. and had this position on the Trump campaign, he was, Kilimnik was like front and center. Um, but the mistake that the Senate report identified in the Mueller investigation was that Mueller said that um, Kilimnik left the Russian military in 1995 and joined this Western think tank, the International Republican Institute, in 1998, whereas, uh, according to the Senate report, both those things happened in 1995. So Kilimnik left the Russian military, and basically flew his fresh out, and the first thing he did was go to start working with like Americans who were posted to the former Soviet Union or there in, in that case in Moscow. And, and the IRI there, if I, if my recollection is correct, 
both parties, both U.S. parties have, and I can't remember what the Democratic one is called, but they have these almost quasi-governmental um, organizations that are, you know, kind of democracy building in around the world kind of things. And, and it's, you know, it's very, it, they're obviously not governmental organizations, but they're pretty close. Um, you know, working in the former Soviet Union and this kind of stuff. And again, Democrats have one that has a pretty similar acronym name. So, you know, that part yeah. of it is pretty standard. For sure. And it makes sense that it would be a target um, for a foreign intelligence agency, <laughs> especially in the host country where the... Uh, yeah, where they're doing their be. work. Yeah. yeah so yeah. one other question. So... Just to just to clarify this, most or all of the findings you're talking about here, these are signed off on by the Republicans and the Democrats on yeah. this committee, right? I guess the Dem- some of the Democrats did an addendum where they kind of said, "Well, we you know we thought this evidence was better," but but that I, I think that's a really important point for uh, for our listeners to absorb that everything you're saying here the majority of Republicans signed off on is true. This isn't like the Democrats got together and looked at the stuff and, you know, this is their gloss. This is, this is what passed muster with the Senate Republicans, which is saying a lot. Um, and I suspect a lot could not meet that standard for obvious reasons. I think that's right. It, a lot that it was also, true, let's put it Right, for sure. But it also raises interesting, I think, questions about Manafort because one thing I heard, like, the first time, really, like, 2017, I think, for fairly soon after the election, was that there were a lot of Republicans who were very angry at Manafort, basically because uh, if you, let's say, let's assume that, like, Donald Trump and the people kind of around him were just completely ignorant of everything that was going on, you know, Manafort, by taking the polling data and giving it to these Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs. Um, I mean, it, it, from that standpoint, like the Trump campaign as like a legal entity is kind of the victim of Manafort as the you know campaign chairman freelancing and just kind of screwing around and trying to pay off his own debts with internal campaign information. Um, I'm not being naive. I'm not saying that like we should actually think that that's the case, that that's the case from Trump's perspective. But th- there there is a real argument, you know, from the Republican standpoint. I think of like. Why was this guy taking our campaign and just like trying to use it to pay off his personal debts? And when I was reading the report and I saw that they led with Manafort, he was front and center. They really went in on him hard. They called him a grave, grave counterintelligence yep. threat. Yep. It, it, yep. it just kind of came together as a reason why they might be willing to really uh, go That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So, Josh Kay, are there other, um, tell us some of the other areas or ways that the the Senate report went a bit further than Mueller's findings. Because I think we all sort of think about the special counsel's investigation as the, you know, the defa- you know the, the kind of defining investigation in the uh, Russian, you know, Russian meddling in the, in the election. But, and, you know, we mentioned at the top kind of the differences between these investigations. But tell us a, a couple other areas where it diverged a little bit. I think, well, so for me, the other big point on that, um, it, I, I don't think you can really blame Mueller for this, but it's that the Senate report made a direct, direct, direct connection to everything that's happened since 2016 and basically the Russian interference effort. Uh, so in the Senate report, you know, Manafort steps down from the campaign, Trump wins the election, and immediately all the same people who were involved in all of this, and even some of the same, like, you know, online accounts that were backed by the Russian uh, military intelligence, uh, pivot 
and start trying to push this narrative that Ukraine interfered, that there wasn't any Russian interference in the election. Um, and the Senate report lays out very clearly that the narratives of Shen up leading to Trump's impeachment last year uh, are the same ones that kind of emerged after 2016, and that specifically Manafort and Konstantin Kilimnik were the ones who started pushing it, basically in the days in August 2016 after Tia had to step down. And to be specific, that's the idea that it was Ukraine which interfered in the election, which I think listeners can remember Donald Trump brought up to the Ukrainian president during his phone call with him last year and ended up withholding military aid tried to try and get them to investigate those allegations. Um, but yeah, I mean, that all of that came kind of directly from the initial interference campaign and as a response to it and way to discredit, you know, the allegations that the Russians did in fact interfere. Uh, that was a big revelation that, I mean, I think for good reasons Mueller really couldn't have addressed. I think at various points he kind of hinted at it, but he didn't uh, address it square on, but the Senate does. And it's really revealing too, because another revealing point is that a large part of that section is redacted, but a part of the section which is not redacted mentions this guy, Andrei Telejenko, who is the only Ukrainian or the only foreigner to have spoken to Ron Johnson's investigation, where Johnson's even admitted to have taken information from him. Uh, so that also kind of like, I think, closes the circle a little bit more. It, it's unreal that these two things, on the one hand, you've got one committee where the, where <clears throat> Senate Republicans are, are you know, uh, asserting these facts, and one of their colleagues, I guess he's not on this committee, or maybe he is, I have no idea, um, Johnson, is working with the guy. I mean, it's just, I mean, in some ways, it's it's only a microcosm of uh, you know the larger tragic comedy that we're that we're talking about. Um, but but it is it, it it's something to see. It, it, it's it's mind boggling. Yeah, especially because the report makes really clear that you know basically the charges for which they acquitted Trump. Uh, in January, and that seems like a decade ago, but uh, that, I mean, that that, that that was a product of a Russian intelligence operation. Um, and so the same senators that sponsored this report and signed off on it also acquitted him, which is really, uh, I mean, I mean it, it, those two things are slightly different, but still, it's like, it's, it's very strange. Are, are reporters still plumbing? I mean, if the thing's a thou- thousand page, pages, I mean, I can't read a thousand pages. In, in, in an afternoon, <laughs> I would assume that people kind of uh, did did keyword searches for key stuff and sort of drilled in and maybe now go. But it seems like the, I, I would think that there are probably details and nuances and footnotes that reporters have not been able to fully absorb yet. Yeah, I mean, even this morning, you know, my colleague Terry Einstein and I were looking uh, and I were looking through it and found like there was a suggestion that Eric Prince, for example, on like page seven hundred and something, uh, like misled the Senate committee. Um, I mean, there's just all these little things like that, or like some people last night on Twitter were a show talking about like an episode involving Donald Trump and Michael Cohen at like a Las Vegas like nightclub. I mean, there's all this like there's a lot of detail in there which just has like not been. I think I think you're right. Like the depths of which have not been plumbed. Well, it's it's also, you know, and we have been over this many times, but this is why the fact that we were forced into having the Mueller probe be sort of like the canonical and definitive examination of this question was was always so flawed and so just not the right way to go about things because there's whatever errors that they made and there's whatever... Uh, you know, kind of institutional politics that that Mueller had to, you know, operate within. But at the end of the day, it's a criminal investigation. And that is a prism in which 
all sorts of highly, highly relevant information. It's just not meaningful. You know, it, 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 and, and a lot of that is the most critical information. It's not, uh, you know, um, the counterintelligence aspects of that investigation uh, mainly remained uh, opaque or just totally classified, just not, you know, uh, not public at all. And uh, lots of, you know, lots of the issues of was a, you know, foreign intelligence asset running a U.S. presidential campaign and coordinating with, uh, you know, a foreign intelligence agency, which I think at this point seems like, yes, that is what happened, you know, and, and these things are never like, you never sign a thing. You're like, yes, I'm signing up to work with your foreign intelligence campaign. I mean, obviously these things are all kind of, you know, they're secret, they're, they're winks and nudges and stuff. And, you know, I, I've seen various people saying, well, you know, he wasn't really working with the Russians. He was trying to kind of, you know, you know, reduce himself and his influence and be able to make money again and pay off his debts. Well, that is always how these things work. You almost, ne- I mean, you never get someone from a foreign country like, yeah, I'll work for you. I need a job. That sounds good. You know, you're, you're leaning on people and, and they need to kind of get their money back or all the, all these kind of things. And, and you, you, you leverage people. And, uh, a lot of that stuff is just not relevant to the criminal law. So it's, it's not surprising that there's, um, a lot more there because in their defense, it just, those things are just not really within the Mueller reports purview by and large it, it raises this question of like what's in the public interest to know because for example in the center report uh i mean there's a portion where they say that there's like fragmentary evidence that manafort had a had knowledge of the gru you know hacking and uh this you know email leak operation um and you know the the two pieces there's two pieces of evidence which support that one of which is fully redacted the other which is partially redacted but like the fact that there's any evidence to suggest that is obviously a huge public, in, uh, like huge public import, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't. It, it makes sense to me why people kind of relied on the Mueller report as this kind of dispositive, like end all be all of what happened. But it, it is true that there was this other investigation going, ongoing, and there's still just so much we don't know. I mean, as I said earlier, it's like we don't know what ha- really happened between Manafort and Kilimnik. Well, you know, and also going forward, this is this is why I think it is so absolutely critical to have a general audit or commission of this entire four years, assuming Donald Trump loses or assuming whenever he lo- leaves office, he will not be the permanent president. I mean, you know, everybody dies. Right. Um, why that's so critical, because it, it you know, it, what we saw in the Mueller report is that criminal investigations are frequently not just not looking at the critical questions, but they are run counter to surfacing the critical questions because there are all sorts of confidentiality issues and um, rights people have to not incriminate themselves, all these kind of things, all of which are very important if the question is, is the government, is the state going to be able to put you in jail? or take away your property or stuff like that. But whether or not, you know, Donald Trump or Donald Trump Jr. or whatever kind of toady is punished for these things, it's, it is so much more important that we know what happened. 
because knowing what happened is politically relevant. We really can't move forward if we have no idea what happened. And once we find out what happened, we can, we can make some sort of educated decisions about what we're going to do about it. But before you even know what happened, none of that is possible. And if finding out what happened uh, makes it impossible to, you know, criminally charge this or that person, that's fine. It's, 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 it's a good bargain because, again, finding out what happened is, you know, think about it now. Think about the fact that Paul Manafort is, I guess, he's still in. He tried to get out. He's, he's still, what, what's the status? What's his status? He's, he's at home, home release because of COVID. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, home release, presumably at some point he'll go back in prison. He's, you know, he's doing like, what is it, eight years, right? Eight or nine years, something like that. Okay. So he's doing serious time. But to me, the fact that this individual person, Paul Manafort, is going to be spending a big chunk of the remaining years of his life in prison, that doesn't, that's not very relevant to me. I don't think it's really very relevant to the country. It's important that people, you know, are accountable for their actions, but it would be infinitely more valuable to know what happened, to know what happened. So part of the report that's interesting is that, you know, the DOJ didn't completely cooperate in uh, giving the Senate committee the the materials, the underlying materials from the Mueller investigation. Um, What's interesting is that the report relies on a lot of FBI interviews and various evidence that Mueller collected, but they say very clearly in the report that, look, the DOJ is still producing these documents. They've been doing it very slowly. It took them months for them to respond to us. They didn't even issue a fully redacted copy of the Mueller report. Um, so, you know, even this, even this Republican-led committee was hamstrung by the DOJ. And, I mean, to your point, Josh, it, I mean, it's part of a broader effort to, you know, ensure, to obscure what actually happened. Right. And, and, and in this case, obviously, the Trump DOJ is highly compromised itself. But, it, but even at a, even stepping back and, and, you know, opening a wider aperture, what possible legitimate governmental uh, equity or good is served by not having the elected representatives of the country in confidence. It's not like they're going to like just publish it willy nilly. They're obviously, you know, classifying all sorts of stuff, you know, themselves to keep that, you know, to keep that hidden. That's crazy. Nothing's more important than, you know, the, the public at large may not get to know every last detail. And I think we all understand there's, you know, there's sources and methods and all, all sorts of issues there. But in a highly confidential context for the, uh, the elected representatives, and not just like every member of the House, you're talking about like a dozen people, maybe a dozen senators to be able to eyeball this stuff, to not even allow that, again... Even when you set aside the sort of the corruption of the Trump DOJ, uh, the equities and the the uh, you know the balancing of interests in that kind of calculation are just totally off. Yeah. Well, Josh Kamensky, thanks for uh, breaking this all down for us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, uh, let's. Let's spend the rest of the episode uh, talking about the convention. Josh, as you mentioned, Kate and I have been hard at work podcasting every morning after uh, staying up late and covering covering the events. Kate, I'm sure you're you're a bit uh, fatigued at this point. It's kind of a lot of late nights early in the week. Yeah, just the 
adjustment. That <laughs> how is, how has it been yet. doing doing a daily podcast? What's what's your what's I mean, it's a lot of work, but like in terms of you know, that's a different thing. That's kind of, you know, what we do is we, we look at a week's worth of news and we kind of talk it over and everything. And we maybe zoom in on one of the stories that Kate's working on or Matt's working on or Josh is working on. But what you're talking about here is more like kind of news coverage, you know, it, so that's a, that's a different beast. I'm curious uh, how that's gone. Yeah, I like doing the daily podcast, but I kind of like the... Um Hmm. The pageantry of the convention is interesting me as well as the substantive bar. So I don't know. I kind of like talking about the like what works and doesn't work from not just like a content perspective, but from like a, you know, did it hit me in the feels or was it like weird and stilted, which is, you know, obviously a bigger part of this convention than it is your standard fare because there is so much to be an armchair TV critic about. But I would assume in, in, in this case, too, when you're doing it daily, you're not just, uh, you know, remember when that happened, here's our perspective. You're kind of, you're, you're telling people the news, right? You're, you're kind of reporting That's the news true. that people may not have heard yet, or it's, or it's much closer to the news. So I'm just curious how that, you know, what that experience is like. Does it feel like it works for us? Because uh, you know, doing doing a uh, doing a, d- a daily podcast or one that is again closer to the news is, you know, sort of uh, in terms of you know our planning is something that I've always been interested in, and, and uh, you know, staffing it and making sure we have time and all that kind of stuff is is a totally different calculation. But I'm just you know curious how it how it feels like it works, as it were. I think it's been good too. I mean, we're keeping it pretty short. I think yesterday's episode was about 11 minutes. We went a little longer today. Um, so we're just trying to give listeners kind of a quick recap of what they might've missed or, you know, emphasizing certain things, um, and kind of giving a bit of a flavor of kind of what we thought and, and, and how it, how it effective it was, I guess, you know, it's interesting talking about the virtual convention, Josh, I know you're, you mentioned at the top of the episode, you're a fan of it. And I think, Last night, I thought was largely pretty successful. You know, we talked about the the glorious tour of the country for the roll call vote. And I thought actually on the first night, it was a little bit shaky to start. Not shaky in a, like a, a kind of poorly executed way or anything like that. But um, I didn't get a real hit of emotional resonance, I think, until Kristen uh, um, Urquizzi. I'm, I'm kind of I'm probably butchering her last name. The woman who lost her dad to covid. Uh, spoke and, and delivered that kind of gut punch of a line that the only pre-existing her condition her dad had was trusting Donald Trump and that he paid for that with his life. And um, to me, it kind of was like the Kizir Khan moment of the convention so far and um, kind of delivered a, you know, an emotional, emotional moment. But Kate, what have, what have been some of the highlights for you? What if, uh, what's really stuck out to you now that we're a couple days in? Well, I think... The dominant theme so far, um, which has obviously been carefully calibrated to be such, is that Biden's got a compelling story. He's got a very American story, you know, in that he came from the middle class. He faced adversity and tragedy. He overcame it kind of thing. And that's just been the through line to everything they've been doing, Um, you know, whether it be a health care package or, you know, setting up jill biden as our possible next first lady like it's just that's been very central 
and not that I expect the RNC to look anything like the DNC, but that's a point on which especially the Trumps just can't answer because Trump doesn't have a you know, typical middle-class American story. You know, he was born into a ton of money and, you know, squandered most of it in kind of one failed enterprise after another. But it's very hard to spin that as kind of like the Republican favorite, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. And for Biden, there's also the kind of bonus of a lot of his story is very grounded in family and it's very... Um, inspires your sympathy and kind of makes you admire someone who's gone through such horrible things. So I think his story has kind of like primed the pump for them to do this very um, emotional tug at your heartstrings kind of thing. And then with that as the foundation, then you've got the fact that we're going through a really, really hard time as a country. Um, so layer on top of that, you know, tributes to healthcare workers and then remind everyone that Biden did the ACA and like, you know, that kind of, in that way, I think it's been effective at hitting that kind of emotional note um, and giving you something to watch that isn't all Trump all the time, but is actually the way in which Biden is such a foil to Trump. I, I think, you know, that is something, I mean, they're obviously playing it up as they should. And that is one of the, you know, everybody has their moment in history or, or their moment when who they are fits, right? And if you think of, I mean, Barack Obama, it would be hard for Barack Obama to be much different from Donald Trump. We know that. That's obvious. But Barack Obama is a, a fairly cool and I don't mean just that in the in the in the um, in the vernacular sense of the word. He's not touchy feely, right? One of the kind of the dings on him during his presidency was you know kind of cerebral, you know, kind of distant, and um, that is the, you know that's always been the thing about Joe Biden. Even the things that have gotten him in trouble sometimes of hugging and this and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. He is a very emotive person and a sort of a central part of his thing is suffering and empathy, right? And in that sense, he, he could not be more different from Donald Trump. I mean, yes, he's another white guy in his 70s. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's, there are certainly some similarities. But, um, you know, Trump is unfeeling and cruel. I don't even think that's really something his big supporters would even really deny. That's kind of the that's kind of what they like about him. Right. That kind of uh, owning the libs kind of, you know, roguish, nasty kind of thing. And there are things about Donald Trump like think about when you've ever seen Donald Trump laughing. He doesn't laugh. He does this kind of faux laugh of kind of like attacking you. But there, there are just these things about um, normative emotional range the guy does not have. And a lot of that, certainly for his critics, those are the kind of things that, um, you know, sociopaths are like that. And uh, there are, you know, they may not be the most consequential things about Donald Trump, but... Um, you know, he goes in some grieving person and he's talking about his poll numbers and stuff. I mean, he, he, 
there are there are um, there are whole ranges of emotional experience and empathy that are just he doesn't have them. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like a lobe of his brain that is not there. It's not even things like, you know, he's, he's not nice enough or he doesn't do this or he doesn't do that. There's certain things, they're not there, right? They're kind of, there's a hard wiring in the guy's brain that is not there. And, um, that makes Donald Trump, you know, it, it would be fine if he was, if he had no empathy and he just managed testing well, Right. I mean, though, that's what really matters. But in in a climate like we are in right now of of immense suffering and immense uncertainty, you really want a, a, a national figure who's not an asshole. Right. Who 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 you think kind of really is thinking about the suffering of individual people and families and what this means for people. And so in that way, you know, Biden is just now, you know, you can say he's this, he's, you know, he was kind of in the tank for the credit card companies and neoliberal, you know, there's lots of good critiques of Joe Biden. Um, But that has always been the thing that is kind of him, that kind of emotive empathy and experience of suffering and loss. And that's kind of the moment for this. Now it is, it is, you know, he he has he has rendezvoused with a moment that plays to many of his strengths, and is and is just you could not imagine a more opposite thing with Donald Trump, with the just the chaos, the nastiness, the um, just the total selfishness of the man. Just the total, total selfishness of the man that is, that is um, it, uh, hard to even convey. Like one of the things, you know, there's that, there's that, what is it? He was the DHS um, chief of staff of the DHS who's made this commercial. If you haven't, you know, Google it. If you haven't seen it, it's a really powerful commercial, uh, you know, under Trump and is now making this, you know, kind of TV ad against him. And one of the things said kind of, you know, there's these terrible wildfires in California, not the ones now, but the ones, you know, a couple of years ago, whenever it was. And Trump's there kind of fuck them. They didn't vote for me, you know, <laughs> which is which is not only kind of like that's not OK as president. That's like literally not OK. That's not part of the constitutional mandate. But it's also just like that makes you kind of a terrible person. And and um most of us, probably all of us, have those, have impulses. You know, we all feel selfish. We all kind of get angry at people who we don't feel have been nice to us. Um, few of us are more guided by those uh, impulses, are open about them. You know, a lot of us kind of, you've, we've all had a moment where you kind of did something you're not proud of, but you didn't broadcast it. You didn't tell everybody, you know, I want to hurt this person because they... 10 years ago, they, they, they looked at me the wrong way and I got sad. And now I'm going to make the, one of their parents die. <laughs> He's just a bad person. And um, so the contrast is pretty, is, 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 is pretty intense and it's a good moment for him, for Biden. Josh, I'm curious. I haven't seen your, um, your thoughts yet on Michelle Obama's speech, but what were your, um, what's your kind of quick takeaway from, from her first night's, the keynote speech? You know the thing is, and I I wasn't sure how to how to convey this exactly, but um, uh, you can. Th- there's no reason what most politicians' spouses get good enough to do a presentable speech, 
Right, because it's kind of part of the part of the job. You got to, you know, at least kind of go through the motions and and you know not bobble your lines and stuff like that. Um, but being able to to communicate in that way, you can be a big star and super smart and a top of your profession and still be terrible at giving a speech and not be charismatic at all and not be be able to communicate. And it it is remarkable to me that. Barack Obama's wife, not surprised. She's very accomplished, very all the good things. But I was just like, wow, like that, like that was just, um, it was just so good. It was just so persuasive in rhetorical terms. And, um, you know, I'm sure she had lots of, as every politician and politician spouse has, you have professional speechwriters helping you out with it. Um, but it was, just very it 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 connected with me um it, it was just very powerful without being at all political in the sense of policy stuff you know it's profoundly political and politics isn't a bad thing uh but that that was my sense i i i i was um i you know I hope she never runs for office, and I don't think she will ever run for office. I think she's been very clear that it's just not something she's ever going to be interested in. And I think as a general matter, it's bad to have these kind of all these political dynasties that we've been kind of churning up. But um, she's just really, really good at it. And again, this it's not like I would expect less of her, but she's a lawyer. She's a corporate lawyer. That's really what her, you know, that's what her professional background is. Um, you know, Barack's the politician, and that that's part of the skill set of a politician. So that that was really what um, what came through to me. You're, you're talking about kind of a a a unique star power and and skill set that's you know pretty remarkable. You know, kind of lightning strikes twice in the same in the same couple. Right. Well, Kate, maybe we can end on, I don't know, any other kind of highlights that jumped out to you and then tell us a little bit about what we can expect for the rest of the week and kind of what you're what you're looking out for in the next couple of days. Well, I mean, on Michelle Obama's speech, I think kind of similarly to Jill Biden's last night, they both carried out the, what we've been talking about, that the theme of this convention is empathy. The idea is that if you're someone who is tired and has been sad and scared for a long time this is the place for you that's what they've been trying to convey and that and yeah Michelle Obama's speech was emotional and intimate and kind of built as she had like a quaver in her voice towards towards the end talking about you know if you think things can't get worse they can you know it was just a real all-out plea kind of to save the you know the soul of the nation that's been Biden's thing and then Last night, our keynote was Jill Biden speaking from the empty classroom in which she used to speak. And it's just such a clear juxtaposition where you have Trump's stance is literally some kids are going to have to get sick, which is one step away from some kids are going to die, but we need to go back to school. And then you've got Jill Biden, an old you know, a teacher who taught while she was first lady. You know, you have her speaking from her classroom and trying to 
give voice to those fears of literally every parent in America who's got young children right now and who has no idea what the fall is going to look like. Um, so I think you've just got these, these moments and all of them are so, I mean, I'm sure carefully curated, but it goes along with what Josh was saying about this really, this moment really fits Biden's personality and his kind of ethos as a politician. And that's how the convention has been, you know, and I think the biggest criticism people have had of, of, about it so far is that it's like corny or earnest, you know, but that is where I think the Democrats want to be right now is that you prefer to have kind of a feel good kind of Olympics personal story package about people who have overcome terrible illnesses, you know, I think you'd rather err on that side than whatever you know, the RNC is going to be next week. But I mean, tonight the lineup is very, um, it's kind of like switching the focus to Kamala, uh, very kind of stacked with um, the female stars of the party. Um, but I don't know. I mean, we you could tell from their first joint appearance, you know, Biden and Harris, where it was all about, we're entrenched in our families first and foremost. We knew each other through Bo first. And that's the kind of you know, the implicit message there is we we love our family unit and we're willing to sacrifice and work to keep it really strong. Those are our foundational values. And then the carryover of that is, and that's what we're going to do for America. That's how we're going to bring it back together. And then Jill Biden said that expressly last night. I mean, the lead into her speech was, I was faced with how to bring a broken family back together. You know, the Bidens after they lost to their family members. And then the message is, and that's how we're going to bring America back together with like, with love and understanding and patience and everything. And, you know, I'm sure for some people, they'll find that cheesy or disingenuous, but that's what we're going to see. That's what it's going to be all week. It's going to be feel good, unite, America's better than this. We can be, you know, and then, and, um. I have absolutely no idea what the RNC is going to be, but I would predict not that. (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing with the other thing with schools is um, about, you know, kids getting sick, kids dying. It's not just that, but what is implicit, I think, in this in this conversation is it would be one thing if if someone said, look, we have tens of millions of children in this country. We can't let them go a whole year without education, without social development. And so we have, we've got to do this. We will do the best we can. We cannot say that some kid somewhere will not get sick and there will not be bad outcomes, but we got to balance these things. There are a lot of different things at stake. But I think we know that is not what Trump is saying. What he is saying is the kids got to go back to school because I want to get reelected. And that is super important. And I need to get reelected. And if your kid dies... I'm willing to make that sacrifice. I mean, that really is what he's saying. He, he doesn't give a crap about, I mean, he's, education is just, an, is not even a, a thing in Donald Trump's mind. It's, it's, you know, I think he does at some kind of lizard brain level, uh, you know, care about manufacturing. Country can't be great unless you're producing big things that you sell to other countries and get their money, right? I mean, I, he, he operates there. He doesn't think about education. He, he had someone else take his SATs for him. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's all a joke to him. But that basic thing of we know why he wants, pe- why he wants kids to go back to school. 
because it's part of being back to normal and the V-shaped recession and I get reelected. And that kind of, um, that strips bare the whole kind of package of Trumpism. You may have to sacrifice for for me to get more money and keep my power. You know, (laughs) and that just, that's who Trump is. That is who he is. And that has always been uh, what he is. And when you're not in a pandemic, it can kind of, the, the, the aggression and predation is not evenly distributed, right? It, it's it's going to go badly for like immigrant kids at the border, but like, you know, me in the country, I'm a citizen, kind of got a house, got a whatever, eh, you know, won't be too bad. Stock market's doing well. Um, and, and it is certainly not evenly distributed now, but the, but there's a lot of suffering all around and any parent is, is nervous about what's going to happen in those schools. And it just brings out his malevolence and aggression and predation right out in the open and in a way that almost everyone in the country can, can experience directly, even if it's not evenly distributed, it's widely distributed. Yeah. Well, that seems like a good place to end on it. And we'll be back tomorrow with another convention recap and uh, next week with another regular episode. Cool. Well, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. It's great stuff. We all drink it. You should, too. And uh, if it's your first time ordering, you can get 20% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with the promo code TPM. And as always, you can also get it at Amazon, at your local grocery store, etc. Cool. All right. right. Later, dude. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye. 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 One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.